Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, August 24th, we are studying Lamentations chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. The fourth poem in the book of Lamentations begins by giving voice to a heart-wrenching condition of the people of Jerusalem and Judah, what they've experienced from the Lord's wrath over their rebellion. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Nathan Jastrom. Dr. Jastrom serves as Professor of Theology and Chair of the Theology Department at Concordia University in Wisconsin. Dr. Jastrom, welcome to Sharper Iron. It's a pleasure to be with you, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, Dr. Jastrom, let's talk a little bit of context. We're now in Lamentations chapter 4. We've come through the first three poems. What should we know? What would you like to, to help us remember about the style, the structure of the book that will help us as we start into chapter 4 today? Well, Lamentations is a unique book. It's the only book that's just filled with laments from beginning to end. And even though the author is not explicitly stated, uh, tradition has it, and there's good reason to support that tradition, that uh, it's the prophet Jeremiah that wrote this book. And what I find fascinating is that both the prophecy of Jeremiah, the, the book of Jeremiah, and the book of Lamentations share a similar overall structure. You have the opening chapters, the beginning chapters, all doom and gloom and and uh, lamenting. And the latter chapters, again, doom and gloom and, and lamenting, perhaps with some uh, prayer for restoration. But the middle chapter here in Lamentations, uh, chapter 3 in, in the book of Jeremiah, chapters 30 to 33, they are the bright light that shines through this gloom. There's There's a lot that can be said for that type of structure, that in the midst of suffering, there's that hope that comes from our faith. There's that, that good use that, that God makes of suffering. So that's uh, kind of the, the overarching um, uh, structure of, of these books that I find fascinating. But particularly in the Book of Lamentations, as you're reading through it, it sounds like it's just somebody spilling his guts in sorrow, a stream of consciousness. How could these things be happening? Oh, life is horrible. But when you look at it more carefully, you find that it's very carefully constructed. Um, in fact, they, they use what's called an alphabetic acrostic for uh, these, these uh, chapters and lamentations, which means that uh, every verse starts with a, a significant letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if it were written in English, you'd have the first verse of, of the chapter going with, with the letter A, and the second with the letter B, the third with the letter C. It's just a way of, of showing the careful construction, uh, all this, this um, raw emotion, very carefully wrapped to make the strongest possible impact on, on the reader. 
is is there a relationship do you think between that the structure that you described where you've got this hope in the middle just like the book of jeremiah i appreciate that no one's pointed that out to me but I, I, that's a very good insight to see that similarity and structure between the book of jeremiah with that book of comfort in the middle and the book of lamentations with that central chapter chapter 3 with the the great comforting verses there do, do you think there's a, a relationship between you know, the idea of the spilling of the guts out on the one hand and the emotion, but arranged very neatly in this acrostic to that same theology that you were describing of the faith you know, being there in the middle of the, the grief and the suffering and the lamentation? Is there is there a relationship between those two things, do you think? I, I do think that there's a strong relationship, and, and that gets us into that theology of suffering. Uh, Christians have a different view of suffering from uh, most people in the world, uh, at least those Christians who, who follow biblical teaching on that uh, topic. Um, this is, is something that that Luther spoke a lot about, uh, the theology of the cross, how suffering is actually a benefit for God's children, that God uses suffering to accomplish uh, good in, in people's lives. The, the, the common idea of suffering is that it's just a, a horrible thing. You try to avoid it as much as possible, and, and the good life is one that doesn't have much suffering. Well, if, if you have that idea, that negative idea of suffering, then you fail to see all the good that God accomplishes through suffering. And in fact, you'll try to shield God from sending the suffering. If you talk to so many people in the world, including many, many Christians, they try to shield God from the suffering that we experience, and, and they're really uncomfortable with saying that God sends suffering, even to the righteous. What, what, what is much more common, and even you hear it from many pastors in their sermons, is, is not that God sends suffering, but simply that God allows suffering as if God and suffering are kind of enemies, and, and God is trying to fight against suffering in our lives. But, you know, if, if that's true, then God often doesn't win that struggle, right? I mean, people are suffering all the time. It seems like God is not very powerful. He can't stop that from coming. But what we learn about in, in the book of Lamentations is not only that, that suffering can be used by God for good, but also that God even sends suffering. And, and, and what, does, what does that mean? Well, um, it means that God is actually the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He has ultimate power over all creation. So that means that, that he controls even suffering. That is, suffering even has to serve God. Now, how does, how does suffering serve God? Sometimes it's to punish evil, and we get a strong dose of that in Lamentations. The people are evil. God sends them suffering to punish them for that evil. That's, that's clearly something that happens. But also, suffering sometimes is, is sent to promote good. Um, if you read the book of Job, you realize that God sent suffering to Job through Satan, uh, not primarily not to, to punish him for special sins, but to help Job, to strengthen his faith, and to help all those who, who read about that, that experience that Job has done. So suffering, like, like Luther says, is actually a treasure from God. 
rather than simply an enemy of God that God tries to stop and, and isn't always so successful in stopping. That certainly is a different way of looking at suffering than the world around us would have us believe, that suffering is always a bad thing, something to be avoided. And and even, I think, as you've pointed out, for Christians and pastors sometimes, it is hard for us to speak as boldly and blatantly as the Book of Lamentations does the, to say that God sends suffering. But there's, I mean, when you read through the Book of Lamentations, I recall particularly the beginning of chapter 2, where, where over and over again, you know, God was the subject of all those verbs, that he was the one bringing all this suffering, as you said, in punishment upon his people in, in, there in Judah. And that's that's a challenge, I think, for our sensibilities, but it is something that, that we need. And it, it strikes me that the only way that that can bring any sort of comfort to us or that we can handle that is to know that Christ is the one who who takes the suffering upon himself on the cross, that we don't have a God who sends suffering in a way that is meant to somehow like toy with us or in a capricious way, but he's the God who ultimately has taken that suffering upon himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's only in that, that theology that, that Christ has gone to the cross for us, that any of this, this theology of suffering can ultimately be a comfort to us. I think. That's a great point that you make. Uh, Christ ends up taking the, 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 the punishing suffering for the sins of the entire world. And, and that is, as you say, the only way that, that you can make this into a sort of comforting doctrine. But you also raise a, a really good point about how the Bible makes God the subject of, of all this suffering in the Book of Lamentations. Let me just read you a few of the passages that illustrate the truth of, of what you just said. Um, in chapter 1, verse 5, it says, The Lord has brought Jerusalem, her, her that is Jerusalem, grief because of her many sins. It, it doesn't say the Lord allowed Satan or allowed the Babylonians or whatever. It says the Lord has brought her grief. And then in chapter 1, verse 12, uh, there's that, that beautiful, poignant verse. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by, look around and see? Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? Jer Jerusalem speaking there. And then in chapter 2, like you mentioned, the Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. And, and also in, in chapter 2, you, talking about the Lord, you have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. And, and there's just one other verse that uh, you probably don't uh, get the full impact just reading the Bible in English. But if you look at the original Hebrew, in chapter 3, verse 38, uh, Jeremiah actually, the, the Hebrew words there actually say, from the mouth of the Most High does not come forth evil and good. But the teaching is so obvious to Jeremiah and his followers that they all realize this is an unmarked rhetorical question. It, it, it really is, is teaching the exact opposite as a rhetorical question. So it's properly translated like it is in the ESV. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come, that, that evil uh, in sense of calamities and, and good things come? So, so the reason I'm pointing these out to you is just to make it absolutely clear, 
this is not a strange teaching that Luther imported into the Bible. It's not a strange teaching that, that, that we're talking about today that's foreign to the Bible. It's, it's embedded in the Bible, passage after passage after passage, that God controls suffering. And as you said, he's taken out that, uh, that punishment on Jesus Christ on the cross. So the, the suffering that we experience is always intended for our good. It's, it's in the sense of discipline. It's to strengthen our faith. It's, it's kind of like how, how coaches make Olympic athletes suffer day after day after day as he trains them to be better and better and stronger and stronger. There's no way that you can uh, achieve that good without having lived through that, that experience of suffering that, that is sent your way by, by a loving God or, or by a coach that cares about your progression. The other thing that strikes me is a reason that this is important and very practical in our lives as Christians, when we recognize what we're saying here, you know, that the way the limitations speak, that God sends these things, he causes these things, is that it, it points us in the right direction in dealing with them. If, if it's only a matter of God allowing these things, or if he's not fully causing these things to, to serve us in some way, then I'm going to look for the solution to suffering in, in some other sort of way, shape, or form. So if it, I mean, I'm not going to be directed to God, in other words. But if I recognize that God's the one sending all this, then my only hope is to turn to him. And, and I think that's the beauty of Lamentations, is that in, in the midst of this great suffering that these people are experiencing, and what we're going to read today is pretty horrific stuff that they're describing. Some of the, perhaps some of the most horrific language in terms of what happened in the fall of Jerusalem is found in chapter four. What, what do you do with that? If you don't recognize God as the one that has sent it, then you're going to look for help some other place. But when you recognize, no, God is the one that has sent this to me, and he's the one using it for his purposes, then it forces me to turn back to him and ultimately, that's the only place I'm going to find help. And I think, you know, even though maybe this kind of language is, you know, I, I personally would ha have a hard time praying some of this, but I, that's exactly what I need to do with it. I have to pray it to God because he's the only one that can help me. That's a great point that you raise. Uh, we so often misuse suffering in our life. And instead of turning to God in repentance, what, what we often do is we try to find a scapegoat. You know, why are you suffering? Well, because so-and-so did something bad to me. Or or sometimes we, we complain to God, God, why are you doing this to me? So we always look for someone else to blame. When actually the, the Book of Lamentations teaches us when we are suffering, a proper response to that suffering is repentance for our sin. After all, if, if we were all totally sinless, there would be no way that we would experience any suffering, right? I mean, um, the, the, the suffering and sin are kind of interrelated. So um, in, in the Book of Lamentations, you have that proper re response and that turning to God uh, embedded in the book again. In, in chapter 1, verse 18, uh, Yahweh is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. So that's one expression of, of turning to God. In, in chapter 3, verses 39 to 42, why should any living man complain when punished for his sins? Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to God. Let us lift our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, we have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. I, I looked at this um, in terms of we pray in our church. 
And I, I found something fascinating. In, in our older hymn book, Lutheran uh, hymn book, um, if you look at prayers in the time of calamity, they'll often start with a prayer of repentance. And they'll say something like, oh, God, e- even though we have deserved this and even more because of our sins, we ask that you treat us not according to what our sins deserve, but according to your grace and mercy. Whereas it, it's much more common in modern prayers in times of calamity just to say, oh, God, we're suffering a lot. Please help us and, and relieve us from that suffering. So I, I'm I'm worried that, that many of us today are not making the full use that we can of the suffering that that reminds of us of our, our reminds us of our sin, forces us to turn to God, to plead for His mercy, and to give Him thanks that Christ has taken the punishment for our sins away from us. I mean, there's there's some really beautiful prayers in those older hymn books, older liturgies. I, I love looking at those and and seeing how the the language was phrased, how our fathers in the faith taught us to pray in, in those ways, and and can help us in some of these things that perhaps we've lost to recover those for for helpful use in our Christian lives today. Doctor Jastrow, I've got a question on the Book of Lamentations that. I, and you, I don't know if if this is anything that's that's actually there or not. But I understand. So if if there's if you don't have a, an answer for this, that's fine. But I understand you've you've done some work with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I was curious if there's anything in the the Dead Sea Scrolls that from the Book of Lamentations in particular that is worthy of of mention. I again, I don't know the answer to that question. So if there's not much to say, that's fine. But I'm curious, given given your experience with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes, I, I, I have worked uh, quite a bit with the Dead Sea Scrolls, but mainly with the Book of Numbers, and uh, that's one aspect that I did not uh, check before uh, today's interview. So I was just curious. I, I'm sorry that I, I can't I... give you a specific response to the Lamentations. That's okay. That's okay. I, I was just curious because I knew you'd done important work with that, and so I was, I was curious if there's anything there. That's fine. We can have another conversation about that some other time if there's something there. So there's some wonderful yeah. words here. Uh, let's go ahead and, and take a look at the text that we've got today and, and continue this wonderful conversation. So again, we're in Lamentations 4, verses 1 through 11 this morning. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. 
and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. That's our text for today. That's Lamentations 4, verses 1 through 11. Dr. Jastrom, just thinking about that text as a whole, a lot of what is described here, the suffering that's brought up, deals a lot with the situations at the time of the fall of Jerusalem, the siege that was laid there by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. And I mean, as as I read through the book of Lamentations, this section particularly, what is described is is some of the most horrific, tragic language in the book. Uh, just to help us rem- remember that context of the fall to Jeru- the fall of Jerusalem, what happened, and and how it's described here in Lamentations four. This portion of the book of Lamentations give us gives us some of the most vivid imagery, the vivid descriptions of the suffering that the people underwent when. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon destroyed Jerusalem in 586 or 587. There's some dispute about the exact date there. So the the only other um, detailed account of that fall of Jerusalem we find in 2 Kings 25, and then that is uh, basically quoted in the last chapter of Jeremiah, to show finally how all of Jeremiah's predictions about the fall of Jerusalem actually ended up uh, coming to pass, even though for 40 years before that time he had been predicting this, people just laugh at him. I mean, imagine being a pastor and predicting the fall of, of America for 40 years without it having happened. And then finally, at the end, near the end of your life, uh, the, it finally happened. So all those people laughing at your predictions beforehand, and, and then finally God's word is shown to be true in the end. So um, if, if we read about that account from Second Kings, it talks about how Zedekiah had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, didn't pay him tribute, and made a treaty with uh, Egypt instead. And so um, the Nebuchadnezzar came against uh, King Zedekiah. And it talks about how there was such a severe famine in the city that there was no food for the people to eat. And then how the army fled at night between the, uh, the gate, uh, in the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. And how they, they ran away. But the Babylonians pursued the king. They overtook him in the plains of Jericho, it said. And he was captured. And then here's, here's where it gets kind of gruesome. Now, Zedekiah was taken to the king of Babylon, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and then they put out his eyes and bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. So you you, you see the incredible suffering that Zedekiah, that uh, wicked king, underwent. The last thing he saw was his own sons being killed, and then he was taken uh, captive to Babylon. And then it says that the commander uh, carried off into exile the people who were in the city, um, and and he left behind some of the poorest people in the land to work the vineyards. So that was the kind of historical account of what happened during the fall of, of Jerusalem. But it's in Lamentations that we get the more gruesome details, how this affected individual people. It provides that eyewitness report. It, it describes the physical effects. I mean, what, what we read about here is is just horrifying. 
including parents not feeding their own kids because there just wasn't any food for them. But then it goes so far as to say mothers would even eat their own children. And and you, you might think, oh, this is just poetic exaggeration. It, it would never happen. We have the same thing being described by the historian Josephus, talking about the, the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans 70 years into our, our common era, the A.D. 70. It talks about how when the Romans besieged the city, there was, again, this this great famine. And, and it describes in detail how the people became so hungry that they would eat just refuse that animals would not touch. They would eat uh, leather from their shields. They would go to each other's homes and steal whatever they could find there. And, and things got so, so desperate that he talks about this, this mother who, who had nothing to eat. And she finally took her own son and she roasted him and ate half of him and left the other half for these marauders. And, and the, when the marauders came in to, to um, steal whatever she might have, she said, look, here's the other half of my son. I left him for you to eat. Go ahead and, and uh, take him and, and have a good meal. And, and they were so horrified that they left. They, they couldn't bring themselves to do it. And it, and it was a great national shame that, that things uh, got, got that horrible. That's the, the analogous suffering that, that happened at the time the Romans besieged the city. And here we see the same thing was happening when the Babylonians did in 586, 587. Mothers were even taking their own children and, and eating them. I, it's just a suffering that that's hard to imagine. It's it's beyond what what uh, we we experience in our our daily lives. Yeah, it, I mean, it really is. When you start to read this section, particularly, it's it's just hard to put ourselves in that place. But that that is what these people experienced at the hand of the Lord. And again, the only place to turn when that is what has happened is back to the Lord Himself. That's what the people are doing. That's what Jeremiah is doing here in the book of Lamentations. And we will continue that discussion on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO, talking Lamentations 4 with Dr. Nathan Jastrom. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Tuesday's Rumination Law and Gospel will include both myself, Tom Baker, and Mark Smith in preparing you to sing the hymn of the week for the following Sunday, which always focuses on the salvation won for us by the life, death, and resurrection of both Jesus and through Him, our death and resurrection. Listen to Law and Gospel weekday mornings beginning at 9.30 on KFUO. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Life can be dramatic, but day-to-day -day relationships aren't always like you see on TV. 
you can help the young people in your life work through the drama by engaging them in conversations about healthy relationships. Use Connect With Me activity cards to start discussions on this subject and other topics that matter to teens. Visit health.mo.gov connect to access these free cards and resources. A message from the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, August 24th. We are studying Lamentations chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 with Dr. Nathan Jastrom. He is professor of theology and chair of the theology department at Concordia University in Wisconsin. Dr. Jastrom, prior to the break, we're talking about the fall of Jerusalem and just the, the absolute horrific description of what happened. We got the historical stuff from Jeremiah and from 2 Kings here in Lamentation in poetry form, but very real. This is what happened to the people. I'm curious because you, I know you, you do some work. I read your bio on your, on the Wisconsin, the Concordia, Wisconsin website about the image of God. And I understand that's one of your, your interests. So, I mean, thinking about people who were created in the image of God, this is the type of suffering that the Lord sends upon his, and these are his own people. How, how does that factor into this discussion? The image of God, that people are created in his image, that even this kind of suffering happens to, to us. Well, when when I first read uh, this this pericope in uh, preparation for today, the two things that that jumped out at me uh, most vividly are the incredible suffering that the people are going through, and then the the incredible change in status that these people had. We start out with uh, com- being, comparing them to gold that has grown dim. So gold gold doesn't naturally grow dim. Gold doesn't tarnish. So it's it's really strange that you get that imagery that, that gold is changed and, and holy stones are just scattered around. So you have something very precious now treated as though it's worth nothing. So then the second verse, you have very precious sons. They're worth their weight in fine gold, but now they're regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. So you have these diametrically opposite evaluations of the value of these people. And the only way you can make sense out of that, I think, is is through a proper distinction of law and gospel. When you look at people according to the law, according to the sins that they've committed, they're enemies of God, and they're like dust. They're, they're, they're worthless in his sight. But when you look at them from the perspective of the gospel, how, how Christ said, his son to redeem them. They are the most precious thing in the world. And both of those aspects, I think, are, are um, explained or can be understood as, as you understand the concept of being created in the image of God. We are made to be like God in many different ways. And that makes us very valuable. That makes us different from the rest of God's creation. Uh, we're we're different from other living beings. And, and this is a teaching that's challenged today uh, when many uh, in our society want people to begin to think about themselves as just another kind of animal. Uh, we have all these different animals that have evolved from a common ancestor, you know, a single-celled organism, and, and human beings just are one kind of animal uh, compared to all the other animals in the world. And and God's word says that's that's not true, that God created us specially as the image of God. We are precious sons. We're worth our weight in gold. 
So in that way, we're, we're, we're like God in, in ways that the rest of creation isn't. But we also learn that uh, man became unlike God when he fell into sin and looked at according to the uh, law and, and according to our sins. We are uh, that, that enemy of God, that, that thing that's not precious in his sight. So the, the, the strange thing is that we are both of those at the same time. And, and Luther used a, a Latin phrase to describe this reality of two diametrically different realities. He said that we are simul justus et peccator. That is, we're at the same time justified and sinner, saint and sinner. Those, those two um, realities are always present in every person this side of heaven. So um, the idea that we're both the image of God and yet we're we carry an anti-image of God around in us, that, that sinful uh, side of ourselves. Those are two uh, realities that this chapter probably does a better job of, of illustrating than, than any other part of, of the Bible. We are precious sons, and yet we're regarded as earthen sons. We're, we're like gold, but the gold is dim. We're, we're precious stones, but now we're like the dust that's scattered in the street. Why is, is recognizing that reality here in Lamentations 4 and, and scripturally speaking, why is that such an important part of our, our Christian faith to recognize that reality, the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator? Or why, why is that so important for us? Well, unless you recognize that, if, if all you hear about, if all you think about is that you're perfectly justified, that, you, that you're holy in God's sight, then whenever you read a, a book like the Lamentations or the prophets of the Old Testament, you'll always think that God is talking about somebody else. Oh, yeah, I know somebody who needs to hear this. Yeah, they're, they're, those guys are sinners. Oh, these, these people of Jerusalem, they were, they were so sinful that God had destroyed them. It's only when you realize that you also are a peccator, a sinner, that you can read these words as applying to your own life, that, that you can experience the suffering that you endure as a time that encourages you to repent of your own sins, that reminds you of your sinful self. So it's only when you, when you identify as a sinner yourself that you can hear the sharp words of law that, the, that God has, has inspired in his Bible and apply them to yourself so that, as, as Luther talks about, the, the, the hard soil of your, of your soul can be plowed by the sharp plow of God's law and then become receptive to the, the, the life-giving gospel so that your life can then produce the fruits of the gospel and, and you can live as God's child with the blessings that come from being forgiven of those sins. What about the, the other side of that? That's how, so that's the reason it's important we recognize that, that we are still sinners. How about the other part, the, the simul justus part? Why is that just as important? That is important to keep us from despairing of of all hope and and frankly committing suicide or 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 just just giving up completely and and being completely passive. You, this, the 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 side about recognizing that we are justified, that we are holy in God's sight, is something that we need to stress just as much as the other side that that we are sinful in God's sight. And this is the, the side that, that brings us joy. This is what makes the Christian faith a, a religion of joy rather than a, a down, a depressing religion. 
Um, sometimes I ask my students, uh, how many of you are sinless? You know, raise your hand. And I might get one or two students that raise their hand. And all the rest uh, keep their hands down because they were, were all um, aware that, that we're sinful to some degree. But if if all you are, if, if you think that reality is that you are sinful and that the holiness part that the Bible talks about is just make-believe, then you're not going to have joy in your relationship with God. You're, you're not really set free by the gospel like God wants you to be. So we need to accept the idea that God has really forgiven us, that we are holy in his sight. At the same time, we recognize that we are sinful in his sight and, and need the law to break down our sin. Both sides, the, the law drives us to the gospel. The gospel frees us from the law and uh, restores our, our happy, joyful relationship with God, our Father. Mm-hmm. Those first two verses in particular, the way that you, you were describing, you know, how you see both of those realities in those verses, it, it struck me as I was reading those two in particular that the way the the peccator, the sinner, is described, you know, the, the holy stones lie scattered. You've got the precious sons of Zion who are now regarded as earthen pots. Uh, both of those, and, and maybe I don't, I hope I don't think this is reaching too far, but both of those images recalled a little bit for me some of the things that Jeremiah had preached in his ministry. You know, the, the holy stones lying scattered and the being regarded as an earthen pot. I mean, both of those were involved in what Jeremiah preached, the, the holy stones lying scattered. You know, the Lord told Jeremiah he was going to set him over nations to both break down, but also to build up. You had both of those those parts in his call. And then in the, the earthen pots, Jeremiah, I think it was in chapter 18 of his, of his book, you know, he was sent to the potter, and, and the Lord gave him that object lesson of how the Lord is the potter, and he can do as he wills. And part of what he does is to rebuild. And so even, even in the, the destruction that, we've, that we see here, and particularly in light of what we read in chapter 3 you know, just previously, even in the, the imagery of destruction that's seen in Lamentations 4, it seems that there's there's still a, a note of hope there, which I think would be tied to the, you know, the simul justus part, that, that even as a sinner, I know that Christ is for sinners and he justifies sinners. And even in my most you know, horrific moments, he's the one who, who takes what is ultimately dead and makes it alive. And I, I was trying to make that connection with the book of Jeremiah, especially in those first two verses where it struck me. Oh, I think that's a great point. I just want to illustrate the truth of what you've just said by reading some of the most comforting verses in the entire Bible that, that come from, from chapter 3. Um, that, and, and they also rely, as you said, on realizing that God has forgiven us, that we are holy in his sight. Uh, listen to these verses once again. I know you've heard them before. They're, they're very familiar. But Lamentations three twenty-two to verse 23 because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then uh, verse 26, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And especially these, these verses from 31 to 33, for men are not cast off by the Lord forever, though he brings grief he will show compassion, so great is his unfailing love. 
for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. Isn't that just a wonderful passage? He does bring affliction or grief. It's his alien task, his alien work, as as Isaiah, the prophet, speaks about it. He does do that. It's necessary in a sinful world to do this for our own good. He doesn't willingly do this, but he does it for our good. And uh, the the uh, the governing emotion, the motive behind it all, is the the compassion, the love, the forgiveness that God shows to His precious children. And, and that reality again to, to to go back to what we were saying at the the beginning of the show that reality again of knowing who God is as the compassionate God the one who has an abundance of mercy for His children that is what drives us back to Him in those moments when He's sending suffering and again that the place we see that so clearly is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ where He takes all of the suffering into Himself onto Himself for our sakes. And, and knowing that reality in the midst of the suffering, that's what drives us back to him. And, and that's the place we have to go because only the Lord can, can get us out of this mess. Only he can be our savior. And, and that is who he is in Jesus Christ. Dr. Jastrom, in verse six, we hear that the, the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom. What's this? Or And, and I, I noticed there's, a, there's an ESV note that, it, it might also be translated not just for the chastisement, but also for the iniquity. So the, the sin of my people has been greater than the punishment or, again, sin of Sodom. What, what's going on there in verse 6? What's, the, what's Jeremiah talking about? Yeah, um, glad that you raised that point. It, it kind of um, helps us, again, make sense out of, out of a controversial um, uh, theological teaching that the Bible has. Um, the, the word that you have this NIV or ESV note about that, that's translated in the ESV chastisement and then a different word talking about punishment, um, those are, are very common words throughout the Bible. Normally translated iniquity for the first one, the word avon in, in Hebrew. Uh, avon means iniquity or guilt normally. And the, the second word is the word chatat, which uh, is is just commonly translated as sin. So um, it's if you're just reading through this verse uh, in in Hebrew, it it sure sounds like it's saying the iniquity uh, of the daughter of my people has been greater than the sin of Sodom. But that makes people feel um, a little bit nervous because they've been told, and in one sense it's completely accurate. They've been told that no sin is greater than another, that uh, all sins deserve God's wrath and so forth. And, and that is true in one particular sense. No sin is greater than the other with respect to deserving God's eternal punishment. So we don't teach venial sins and mortal sins as some Christian denominations do. The venial sins, well, they're bad, but uh, you can you can um, make up for them by temporal punishments, punishments here in this life, or by doing certain penance. Mortal sins are sins that will send you to hell. That, I mean, that's a distinction that some Christian denominations uh, will, will teach. That is wrong. Any sin, uh, no matter how little we think of that sin, no matter how light we think of that sin, is a sin against God and deserves his eternal punishment. So in that sense, 
it's true to say no sin is greater or less than the other. But the Bible over and over again teaches that some sins are greater or lesser than others with respect to the damage that they cause to yourself, to other people, or the the faith-destroying properties of that sin. The difference between falling into sin out of weakness, even though you know it's wrong, sometimes you end up uh, committing that sin and, and then you repent of it, versus sins that are committed with full knowledge that they're against God's will, and you just, from a hardened heart, say, I don't care what God says. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. There are different categories of sin like that that the Bible brings up again, again, and again. So um, it, it it is true that you can compare sins to each other and say, well, this sin is worse in God's eyes because it damages people around them more or because it, it, it has more faith-destroying properties. So, for instance, uh, Jesus talked about the people who rejected him despite the miracles that he was performing. He says, it's going to be better for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you who've rejected me, right? So so there's that better or worse uh, aspect to some sins. Or, or, or likewise, maybe this is easier to, to keep in mind. Jesus taught that um, looking at a woman with lust in your eyes is committing the sin of adultery. But hey, you know, looking at a woman with lust in your eyes is a different category of sin from actually going over and sleeping with that woman and breaking apart marriages and causing the extra damage that comes from carrying out your sin. Uh, Jesus taught that it's bad to, to look at people with hatred because that, that is mentally committing that sin of, of murdering that person, of, of uh, not searching for his health and wealth. But never conclude from that that, hey, if I, if I hate someone, I might as well go over and slit his throat because in Jesus' eyes, there's, there's no sin that, that's greater than, than the other. No, you, you try to, to, to fight against sin at the lowest level before it blossoms with all of its destructive power for yourself, your faith, or for other people's health. So here, I believe in Lamentations 4, verse 6, he's actually saying that the sin or the iniquity of the daughter of my people, the iniquity of Jerusalem, is is greater than the sin of Sodom. I think he's saying this much like Jesus talked about those who rejected him. People who have seen and heard God's blessings and forgiveness and, and who have the benefit of, of hearing his prophets daily in their midst, their sin when they reject all that is greater than those who haven't had the same type of benefits from uh, God's forgiveness, his prophets, people who are kind of outside of that. So um, the, the sin of those who know what's good and reject it and fight against it is of a, a higher magnitude than the sin of those who, who may not know that, who haven't been given those those same chances in their life. So, I mean, in a very specific historical sense, then, in verse 6, the, the greater sin that the people of Jerusalem and Judah committed would have been to reject, as, as you said earlier, to reject over and over again the preaching of Jeremiah, to, to laugh at him when he told them to repent that destruction was coming. I mean, that, that essentially would be that faith-destroying sin— much like what happened with Pharaoh in Egypt when he over and over again rejected the word that Moses preached to him, the people of, of Judah committed that same sin. And 
I mean, I, I think this is a this I think is an important point for us today because we we are so trained, and as you said, rightly so, to recognize that any sin is punishable by God, and we should take every sin, no matter how small, we should take it seriously. But I, I think perhaps in in our day we've swung a little bit too far to to forget that. Well, I should take a look at my sins and prevent and and do what I can with the power of the Holy Spirit helping me, of course to to avoid those greater sins in terms of the destruction or you know how it harms my neighbor and how it might harm my faith. I mean what I guess Dr. Justin, just to continue that, what what's the danger if we lose that needed distinction? The danger is that we may lose our own faith. There you, you cannot live with a hardened heart that knows what's wrong, that does it anyway and think, hey, um, every sin is just like the other, so uh, I really don't have to be concerned about this at all. That type of sin cannot coexist in a heart of faith. It, it drives faith out of the heart. That's that's the type of sin that, that separates you from God in, in a, a more permanent way. So we, we simply need to uh, avoid um, getting those those hardened hearts, we 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 need to, like you say, try to cut off sin at the earliest possible uh, uh, juncture to to prevent it from blossoming and and uh, bringing its poison. Not only it's it's debilitating poison, but it's killing poison to our our heart of faith. I mean, I, I think a lot of this, it, it sounds to me like there's a, it's a, we're missing a distinction between the proper distinction between law and gospel when we go this route. If we, if we forget to, you know, to fight against our sin at every juncture, it, it sounds like we're going to start to, to trust in a false gospel, some sort of, I don't know if, if this is the right way of thinking about it, but a cheap grace that just sort of says, well, I can do whatever I want as if I'm not going to fight against my sin. And I think that goes back to a, a failure to properly distinguish between law and gospel and maybe a, a failure to, to teach and preach the law in its full sternness so that, and then if we don't do that, then we really can't have the gospel in its full sweetness. Well, I agree completely. And, and that uh, ties us back again to, to Christ and, and what he accomplished. When, when you look at verse uh, chapter uh, four, verse, verse 11, it talks about the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. When you think about how he gave full vent to his wrath, he, he completed his wrathful punishment of, of their sins with his horrific suffering. Well, the other place where, where that wrath was completed in a more complete sense, of course, is on the cross. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was undergoing this level of suffering that we read about in these in these verses. He was enduring himself the entire weight of suffering that came as a punishment for the sins of the world. And finally, he, he was able to proclaim, it is finished. It is finished. The full vent of God's wrath has been taken by myself on the cross. And that's what we participate in as Christians. When we live his life and die with him in his death, we also have experienced God's wrath against our sins and have experienced the freedom from that wrath when it was completed, when it was finished fully 
on the cross when Christ died for us. Yeah, it's, it's a, a beautiful thing to to remember in the text like this, that, that what we're seeing, this suffering, was all taken into Christ. God's wrath was poured out on him on the cross and then incorporated into him in holy baptism. That same thing that he went through, that's our journey as well, that God kills us and then makes us alive in Christ for our good. Dr. Jastrom, we have about two and a half minutes left on the morning. Help us to, to wrap things up, summarize what we've talked about here in Lamentations 4, and again, from this text, point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, I just love reading the prophets and the book of Lamentations. Um, it, it hasn't always been that way. Before I, I learned to read them as applying to myself, they seemed uh, basically depressing and talking about other people who were very sinful and kind of difficult to read them. And then I learned to read them as both simul justus et peccator. And much of these words apply to me as a peccator in God's sight. They help me repent when I can get pretty comfortable just living my life um, like normal without feeling that I'm all that sinful compared to other sinners that I know. And you start thinking, well, maybe these are words that apply to other people. But Learning to read it as a peccato, as a sinner myself, I am led to greater and fuller repentance in my relationship with God. And then when I see the the hopeful words, the light that shines through the middle of these rather depressing words and, and words about God's wrath, I learn to rejoice more fully in the grace that God has given me, in the forgiveness of those sins, in the salvation that he has worked for me, as he finished his anger as he as that wrath was fully poured out on Jesus so that I don't need to suffer that wrath uh, eternally so uh, these prophets the the uh, lamentations the the bright rays of hope they what what can I say they they make my relationship with God more alive it's like actually having a relationship with your wife instead of merely coexisting with her it's it's conversing uh, freely both the uh, the, the positive parts and the negative parts. And, and in that conversing, you draw closer together. You become more attuned to the mind of God. You, you begin to live as the image of God himself, as you learn to think about yourself and about him and your relationship in terms of how he's created you to be like him, to have full fellowship with him. Dr. Nathan Jastrom is Professor of Theology and the Chair of the Theology Department at Concordia University in Wisconsin, helping us today with Lamentations chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Dr. Jastrom, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Pastor Apple. Um, God's blessings on your work here. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the Book of Lamentations, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send up to a 60-second message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.